Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, we're digging into the mosquito dating scene, the threat of plastic pollution, and Richard Branson's race to space. But first, on this day in 1969, quite fittingly, David Bowie released Space Oddity, and 11 days later, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. This week sees the real start of the billionaire space race as Richard Branson reaches the end of a 33-year-long attempt to get into space, soon to be followed by Amazon's Jeff Bezos. So, while space travel still seems like a far-off dream for most of us, Richard Branson has had his eyes on the prize since at least the late 80s. Back in 1988, he was a guest on the BBC show Going Live and responding to queries from viewers at home when he got this question. Um, have you ever thought about going to, into space, Richard? <laughs> um, I'd love to go into space, as I think pretty well everybody watching this show would um, love to go to space. Um, I mean, the, when you see those magnificent pictures of um, in space and the incredible views, um, I think there could, be, there could be nothing nicer. So, if you're building a spacecraft, I'd love to come with you on it. That call led him to register the name Virgin Galactic the very next day. And now, on Sunday, the 11th of July 2021, Richard Branson is set to make that dream a reality. And it's taken us a long time, I and mean, it's taken us. 17 years of hard work, you know, from when we really started uh, with a vengeance to get this done. We've had highs, we've had lows, but um, yeah, finally we're, we're there. And he's already thinking about what he's going to do differently next time. Speaking in an Instagram Live, Richard explains what he'll want to change when Virgin Galactic is open for customers. I, I want a slightly more comfortable seat rest for future customers. Um, the water flask, it's, the top is apt to pop and therefore you've got water all over the cabin, so I, I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, if you're floating around, orientated when you're floating around, you know what your colour is, so you can go back to your seat. Oh, I'm dyslexic, uh, and just in case of something ever went wrong, I want the parachute straps to be different in colour uh, oh. to the, the seatbelt straps. Um, anyway, so it, well, one advantage of sending up a dyslexic kid who, um, into space is that you know, I can I can spot all these little details, and and in any company, it's sorting out the details that makes for perfection and makes it really a pleasure for customers to experience your company. we all do this but do you ever think about what life would look like in the future ai designing your dinners robots doing your laundry and maybe even solar panels powering your exotic fruit and veg patch this might sound like something out of irobot 2 but according to a new report from smart energy gb this could be a reality within just 15 years we hear now from Rachel Riley, maths expert and TV presenter, and Lagan McNeil, head of policy at Smart Energy GB, to find out a bit more. 
Well, there are some incredible things that have come out of this uh, research. I mean, the idea that we would have robots picking up our clothes from the floor seems quite fantastical and, and a lovely idea. But some of the ideas um, which have smart meters at their heart are much more easy to envisage. So, for example, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the idea that we would have electric vehicles um, was kind of fantastical because they didn't go very far. And where are you going to charge them? But now they're kind of ubiquitous. There's charging points everywhere. And smart meters could allow you to charge your vehicle overnight. It could do it automatically for you when the energy is cheapest and greenest. So there's, there's all kinds of ways where a smart home, where more and more technology interacts with each other, that things become automated. So we're, we're lo- you're using less energy and we're using greener energy in the process. And Lagan, what part of smart meters is going to play in this expected shift in tech? Smart meters are undoubtedly the catalyst for all of this to happen. Not only do they create the foundation for a digitized energy system that is going to be far more resilient and agile, responding to our future needs and changes in lifestyles, but they also provide real-time data that will be the basis for innovation. And that will see brand new ways for us to manage our energy, not just for the more traditional ways of cooking and heating in our homes, but also to enhance our lifestyles. And they will also provide us with new ways to play an active role in combating climate change by managing our energy far better. Now, let's head down under to an ingenious brewery in Sydney, Australia, that's been using algae to curb their CO2 emissions. My name is Oscar McMahon. I'm one of the co-founders of Young Henry's Brewing in Newtown, Sydney, Australia. What we're trying to work out is how much algae you need to ingest the amount of CO2 that a beer creates. According to Professor Peter Ralph at the University of Technology, Sydney, whose team's partnered up with the brewery to test out the science of it all, algae could be our newest weapon in the fight against climate change. Microalgae or phytoplankton are tiny photosynthetic plants. We can't see them by the human eye, but they're a fantastic biochemical factory that makes half of the oxygen on the planet. So how are you actually doing this? So one of the things that we can do to address climate change is to actually use the algae to capture CO2. And this process has been so successful that the brewers estimate their algae releases as much oxygen as two hectares of bushland. That'd be like knocking down a city block and planting trees and letting them grow for 20 years. And that's something that can be made in our warehouse within weeks. Think about that as being a solution for the urban environment. It's quite mind-blowing. Chris Hemsworth swapping his superhero cape for a wetsuit as he welcomes in the must-see event of the summer. Nat Geo Shark Fest is making a splash for its ninth year as it kicks things off with the one-hour documentary special Shark Beach with, guess who, Chris Hemsworth. Get ready for daring dives, captivating science and life-changing stories like surfer Mick Fanning's as he recalls his 2015 shark attack in the opening documentary. It was a beautiful day. It was extremely sunny. Water was picture-perfect clear. And, you know, we're in the middle of a surfing event. 
you know, we had just started the final with Julian Wilson. Beautiful carve to start for Wilson. And I'd been sitting there for probably like four or five minutes. And I was just about to move and then I just heard this splash behind me and I was like, oh, oh no. And I'd try and jump on my board and then all of a sudden I just get hit from this side. I just cop the tail straight to the face. And I'm just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> was... But then I was like, hang on. If I just keep swimming, this thing could just come and take my legs. So I was just trying to get myself up as high as I possibly could to see if it was coming up. Oh, wow. And um, luckily it didn't. What kind of shark was it? It was a great white. Great white? Yeah. How long before the jet ski picked you up? Oh, I would have been probably like maybe 30 seconds. Oh, that's the longest 30 seconds of your life? Yeah. After that happened, do you find you have more trepidation, hesitation, getting in the water? Definitely things have changed now. Like, I see everything on the water now. Yeah. And I'm still scared of hearing splashes behind me. Yeah. It just, I jump. And even if the waves are incredibly perfect, if I just don't feel right, I just go in these Yeah. Waves. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just... It's not worth the risk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How often do you recycle? Come on, be honest. I know that I could probably do a bit more to separate my plastics from paper. We've all seen the images of plastic waste washing up on beaches and finding its way into the stomachs of sea creatures. But even with the best recycling habits, according to a new study, current rates of plastic emissions are reaching an irreversible tipping point. I am Matthew McLeod. I am Professor of Environmental Science at Stockholm University. In my research, I study chemicals and plastics and how they behave in the environment. I think we all kind of get that we're near a tipping point, but one thing I need a bit of clarification on, what exactly is plastic pollution? We have lots of plastic all around us in our modern lives. It's plastic bags, it's food packaging, it's drinking bottles, those kind of things. All of that stuff can become plastic pollution as soon as it escapes from our waste handling or recycling efforts. Once it's out in the environment, plastic is subject to UV radiation from the sun and waves and wind, and it gets brittle and fragments into small microplastic and nanoplastic particles. And then it can become really mobile and move uh, all over the world. Plastic pollution is particularly bad because it's practically irreversible. Because plastic in the environment is so persistent and it's, it's constantly changing forms and fragmenting, 
but it's not degrading and being permanently removed. That means once the plastic is out in the environment, it's going to be in the environment for a long time. As the concentrations of plastic in the environment continue to accumulate, eventually we will trigger some kinds of effects. And those effects, because the pollution itself is irreversible, those effects are also going to be irreversible. Okay, I get it. That's pretty scary. So how do we dig ourselves out of this hole before it's too late? We believe you really have to take strong action and and transformative action. That means changing our whole production philosophy about plastic, putting strict caps on how much new plastic can be produced. If you do that, then all the plastic that exists in society now will become much more valuable for recycling. And there will be incentives for companies to produce plastic that's easier to recycle and reuse. This is quite a different approach to what has been taken so far where the responsibility for recycling plastic and for managing plastic waste has been put on consumers. What we call for in the paper is a transformative change in this attitude to really, from the top down, reduce the amount of plastic that's available to people to make it impossible to pollute the environment to the extent that we have up until now. We may have had a soggy start to the season, but with predictions of a July heatwave, yes please, dermatologists are urging us to crack open the sunscreen once again. This year marks the 85th anniversary of the first ever sunscreen, and with new research from Garnier, we're speaking to dermatologist and skincare expert Dr Justine Cluck to find out exactly how we should be protecting our skin in the summer months. Justine, you've done the research, what have you got for us? What was really interesting was two-thirds of people in the UK reported that they had been sunburnt in the last 10 years. Well, we know that intermittent sunburn episodes contribute towards our risk of skin cancer like melanoma, a deadly form of skin cancer, and that 9 out of 10 cases of melanoma are preventable through good sun protection. Um, A lot of people also didn't feel like we need to use sun protection in the UK because they're not aware that the level of sun exposure here requires it. Okay, so do we need to be wearing sunscreen even when it's cloudy? There is definitely a misconception that you don't need to wear sunscreen when it's cloudy, but we do know that UV rays you know, reach the Earth's surface and they can pass through cloud. So even if you can't feel the sun on your skin, or even if it doesn't look like it's sunny outside, you will still be exposing yourself to the dangers of UV rays if you go out without sun protection on. And what impact do UVA and UVB have on our skin? Is it just sunburn in the big sea or is there more? The short-term impacts of unprotected exposure to the sun include sunburn, so redness, peeling, flaking and pain. And in the medium to longer term, the impacts include skin cancer, so that might be melanoma or it might be what we call non-melanoma skin cancers. And then we also know that 80% of facial ageing can be attributed to sun exposure without decent protection, and that includes wrinkles and dark spots and sagging of the skin. And then finally, there are a group of skin conditions that can be aggravated by sun exposure, and examples of those include um, rosacea, a condition I see quite a lot in my clinic, which causes facial redness, and then pigmentary disorders like melasma, for example. 
I slap on a bit of moisturiser in the morning. I think that's got a bit of UV protection. So how should we go about our day to protect our skin? I think one of the best ways to protect our skin from sun damage is to make sun care a daily habit, to make it part of our routine. And then we never forget to do it and we're always protected. In fact, I think if we um, teach our children this from an early age, we can prevent a lot of damage to the skin going forward. Lovely stuff. Thanks, Justine. I think it's time for a top-up. Factor 30, anyone? Summer has officially arrived, and whilst that means sun, sea and sand for some, it also means mosquito for me and many others. I hate the things. Get out of it! Here in the UK, mosquitoes are at most an annoyance, but in other parts of the world, the diseases they carry can pose a real risk. Mosquitoes are actually the deadliest organism on the planet when it comes to humans. They're responsible for killing on average 725,000 people per year, while humans come in as a close second. And this is primarily because of the diseases they transmit to us. There have been a number of projects that release sterile mosquitoes to mate with the deadly ones, but they haven't all worked out as hoped. In a new study, Courtney Murdoch, an associate professor in the Department of Entomology at Cornell University, has been investigating what turns mosquitoes on in order to turn these results around. So one reason why these approaches do not spread as readily in the field is because we need these modified mosquitoes to mate with mosquitoes in the field. And we don't understand as much as we should about what female mosquitoes find sexy in their male mates. And this is a very important choice for a female to make, as she only mates once in her life. Our research focused on what this choice means for a female, or specifically what her offspring inherit from her male mate. One aspect of a male's quality that could be passed on to his offspring is his ability to resist disease. So parasites can exert really strong selective pressures on their host populations, and there's mounting evidence from a diversity of systems, including humans, that females can gauge the quality of their male mates for their immune systems, specifically what they may pass on to their offspring, which can in turn increase their chances of survival and reproductive success. So what needs to happen next with future mosquito projects? Well, I would say that our results have significant implications for these new control strategies that rely on releasing mosquitoes into the field. Um, Mainly, you know, we don't pay attention to the cues females use to assess males in the mating market. Then modified males could easily lose the ability to compete or females could lose their ability to choose among high versus low quality males. And this, in turn, could affect the vigor of our offspring. And combined, these effects could impact the rate of spread and the sustainability of these control tools in the field. There we go. You heard it here first. When it comes to dating, mosquitoes or otherwise, pay attention to what the ladies want. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Produced and published by Daft Doris.